this morning we are returning to our two-Sunday look at some portions of the book of Hosea. Last week we studied chapter 5 together where we found uh, examples of God's perfect knowledge, what we commonly call his omniscience. In particular, what we saw in Hosea chapter 5 was examples of God's knowledge of Israel's sin. That was Hosea chapter 5. Today we are in chapter 7, Hosea chapter 7, and here we find the prophet Hosea further describing Israel's sin. Now, As we mentioned last week, Israel was a prophet that ministered for about 40 to 50 years up until about 710 B.C., so hundreds of years before Christ came. And the primary focus of his prophetic ministry uh, was to what is called the Northern Kingdom, also known as Israel. Sometimes that Northern Kingdom is called Ephraim. That was the kingdom formed when 10 out of the 12 tribes of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 10 of them, rejected the Davidic dynasty and under the leadership of a man named Jeroboam broke off and formed their own kingdom to the north. Two tribes remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. dynasty. They were in the south. That's the southern kingdom, also called Judah. So Israel slash Ephraim in the north, Judah in the south. Well, due to the rampant and increasing idolatry in the northern kingdom, God spoke through Hosea as a prophet to confront them and to call them to repentance. Otherwise, they would experience God's judgment. Hosea was essentially the last prophet that God used to confront them about their sin. And the book of Hosea represents what was said not just one time to them in a sermon or an email, but what represents what was said to them over the long 40 to 50 years of Hosea's ministry. For a long time, the nation had been doing well, economically at least, prospering. If you had asked the people how things were going, they likely would have said things are just fine, but spiritually they were not doing well. And as you read Hosea, you find evidence of many sins, including the sin of of continually presuming on God's grace, making alliances with pagan nations around them to help take care of them and protect them, the sin of pagan worship, idolatry, murder, immorality, in a word, unfaithfulness to God. Well, did they come to understand that terrible spiritual condition that they were in and repent and earnestly seek the Lord. There are certain passages, if you read them in Hosea, you might at first read, think that they did repent. Look at Hosea chapter 6. Go back one chapter. Verses 1 to 3. Come, this is the people. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us. He'll raise us up that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. You might read that and think it's words of repentance. It sounds like at least they're articulating the right words, but their repentance was actually a sham. 
In reality, what's expressed in those verses there, verses 1 to 3 in chapter 6, is just another example of their presumption. There's something missing there. There's no acknowledgement of their sin. There's no expression of of true hatred of their sin and, and true love for God. They are just articulating that, you know, we'll be okay. God always helps us and he'll keep helping us. Let's just go forward. You get to verse 4 of chapter 6 and you find out really what those first three verses really were like. Verse 4 is God responding like a parent. He says to this wayward child, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Not that a parent has ever said something like that to their children. What am I going to do with you? What shall I do with you, O Judah? The southern kingdom was sinful as well. For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. In other words, it's not real. It it looks like it's there, but it dries up. And in verse 5, God says that he was going to come, not to heal them, but to cut them. Why? Look at verse 6 of Hosea 6. God saw the sham repentance. He says in verse 6, I delight in loyalty. That's something internal. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That means that God wants true internal change, not just external activity. He wants people to own their sin. This is the one time, I heard a friend of mine say this, this is the one time where we would agree with name it and claim it. Okay, name your sin. And yes, you can claim forgiveness. God wants people to name their sin, to own it. That's what's necessary to experience the joy of forgiveness. However, Israel or Ephraim, the northern kingdom, did not own their sin. They did not truly repent. So in chapter 7, where we are now, Hosea speaks further about the sin that had become so common in the northern kingdom and the sin that did lead to their eventual judgment. But we don't just find some terms describing sin. We find terms but we also find some unique images used to help us see sin from God's perspective. Now let me emphasize again that the original target audience of this prophetic book was the northern kingdom. This is God's perspective, first of all, about their sin. But what we find here is timeless. We can apply what we find to our lives today because God's perspective about sin has not changed. So we're going to look at these images of sin, but that's verse 4. The first three verses set it up for us. Verse 1, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria. In other words, God graciously sent prophets like Hosea to warn them so that they could be spiritually healed, and that word heal is a favorite term in the book of Hosea for the idea of forgiveness. Spiritual healing, forgiveness. But the prophet's efforts just ended up bringing more sin to light. Compounding the people's guilt, their iniquity. A word that means corruption. It says it was just kept being uncovered. And their evil deeds were uncovered. That's a term, a comprehensive term in the book of Hosea. For all kinds of harmful, sinful acts and their consequences. All of that uncovered. And no doubt both kingdoms were guilty north and south, but the northern kingdom is especially pointed out in verse 1 with the use of that name Ephraim, and that was one of the tribes in the north, and its capital city, Samaria. 
a lot of the sin was centered there. It spread to the rest of the northern kingdom. And what corrupted Ephraim and Samaria the most? Verse 1 says, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside. I don't have time this morning to develop all this, but that pronoun they is referring back to the priest, the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders. In fact, this actually connects with what's said back in chapter 6, verse 9. If you look back to 6, verse 9, it says, And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they've committed crime. This ties in with that. They deal falsely. The, the thief enters in. Bandits. The spiritual leaders were supposed to be examples and teachers of, of what it meant to live in covenant righteousness before the Lord, but they weren't those examples. They were sinful. The point is all the people then of Israel, including their spiritual leaders, were deep in sin. And the real tragedy is what verse 2 adds, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. The nation didn't even consider God's omniscience, that God was painfully aware of every wicked deed. And we know, we know from Scripture that God's omniscience extends even to what would be called secret sin, not just the actions, but what was in their heart. Like Psalm 90 verse 8 says, the psalmist says in 98, God, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. That's God's omniscience. He saw it all, but the priest's passion for crime, the priest's passion for power, so controlled them that they behaved as though God didn't know about it. And that God no longer would hold them accountable for their conduct. The magnitude of their error is underscored by some of the terms used. Look at that word, all. All, that emphasizes that nothing they had done escaped God's notice, even the secret sins. And the term wickedness or evil works is a general term that just captures the, the many kinds of sin that were committed. But you know that what the most sobering term is in verse 2? What it says about God's knowledge of all that sin, it's the term, I remember. That word connotes not only God's cognitive remembering of something, it's a term that includes a vivid re-experiencing of what is known. In other words, it's presenting it like this, that in God's own mind, not only does he know each sin, but he continually relives the essence and the grief that it causes him. What a sobering thought, especially since there was so much sin in the nation. Verse 2 puts it, now their deeds were all around them, and that's military language. They were like an army that had been captured. They were captured, surrounded by their own wickedness, and that just means they were at this point in deep bondage to sin, and that is the result of continual choices of sin. If choices of sin are not interrupted by repentance, it leads to more and more sin, which is bondage. And again, God sees it all. Verse 2 says, they are before my face. In verse 3, we find another reference to the involvement of the leaders in all this wickedness. It says in verse 3, with their wickedness, they, they make the king glad and the princes with their lies. You see those Plural pronouns, there and they and there. That's again referring back to the priests, the religious 
leaders, but the, the civil leaders are included now, the king and, and princes. The civil leaders, it says, were glad that the religious leaders were so wicked. Didn't mind it at all. And one of the reasons that a king would like the wickedness and treachery of the priests is because the priests many times were involved in murdering the kings, which allowed the present king now to be in power. But the overall point is that both sides, political leaders, religious leaders, both sides were encouraging each other in sin, and that spilled over into the nation. That's the way it works. Whatever is approved by those in power becomes the rule of life for the masses. We see it in our own nation, and it goes the other way too. The sin of the people ends up influencing the leaders. That sets the stage then for what we're looking at this morning. A list of images of sin that are used now to describe all this sin from God's perspective in a unique way, a creative way. And there are four of these images. Four of them. Just used by Hosea to show how God (coughs) regards those who confess his name on one hand, say they're okay spiritually, while they nevertheless continue their rebellious way of life. Here's image number one. The image of an intense fire. The image of an intense fire. And as I give you these images, I'm going to give you the purpose of the image as well. Here's the purpose of this image. It's to describe sin as a controlling passion. So the image is that of an intense fire. It helps us understand that sin's like that. It's a controlling passion. Verse 4, they are all adulterers like, here's the image, an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. What does all that mean? Well, first of all, just know that the image of an oven is common in the Bible, but also in extra-biblical literature. And primarily, when it's used, it portrays something about sexual desires. It presents them as intense fires that drive a person and consume a person who's in sexual sin. And that's true here. There were many cases of literal adultery and fornication, sexual sin, occurring at all levels of society. In Israel, and it was all mixed in with the spiritual pagan worship, the adultery, the worship of idols. So, back to the image the hot, inflamed oven is meant to illustrate this idea of sinful, controlling passions. And in our verse, we see that the oven was so hot that the baker didn't have to keep tending the fire during the night to stoke it to keep it going so he could bake the next morning. It was so hot, he could leave it alone. And the dough he mixed was continuing to rise, and since the oven remained hot all night long, the next morning there was more than sufficient heat for baking. And the point is that this oven represents this controlling passion, and specifically it represents the priest even. Inflamed by lust, inflamed by political treachery and other sins as well. This idea of sin being a controlling passion can apply to any sin of all, any kind of sin. We see a reference to the political treachery in verse 5. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. 
he stretched out his hand with scoffers. I'll explain all this language. The day of our king refers to some special celebration that was going on. And that occasion would include a great festival that would be marked by drunkenness and debauchery and that left the ones attending drunk. And therefore, they could be easily tricked into partnering with those who wanted to overthrow the present king, participate in a coup, we would call it. And this coup began with flattery of the king and his princes, which was made easier by getting them drunk, or as it says here, sick with the heat of wine. They were drunk. And tricked into drunken lethargy, the king, deprived of his sound judgment, would stretch out his hand to people. That was a common gesture of fellowship. But here, it was a gesture toward those who were not really his friends, scoffers. That refers to the priests that were leading the coup, along with those that they had tricked into participating because they were drunk. So in this drunken state, it was easy to defeat. It was even easy to kill the king to make way for another leader. And that occurred several times in the later, the waning years of Israel's political life. King succeeded king, and the nation suffered in this uh, political uncertainty. So back to the imagery. The oven imagery portrays the state of the hearts of their leaders. They were just consumed with their sin. And that imagery is resumed in verse 6. For their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. Those sinful desires in the hearts were smoldering during the night while they waited for the morning. Just like that baker's fire, anticipating the morning and the opportunity to act on their sinful desires. Verse 7, all of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. And as I said, sadly, that was repeated several times in Israel's history. And tragically, verse 7, look what it says. None of them calls on me. At no time did any of them seek God's help. They were all committed to going their own way, following the controlling passions of their hearts, go their own way without the Lord. And the sadness of the picture is further described in verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. That just confirms that God's people had imported the worldview of the the nations. They were just like the pagan cultures around them. They were living like them and worshiping like them and thinking like them. Even though God had made it very clear to his nation in Exodus 34, this great principle of separation from the world. He says in Exodus 34, verse 12 and following, don't make any covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Otherwise, you might play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. God warned them this is exactly what happened. And Now they're imbibing even the thinking of the culture around them. What an indictment this is of God's people. It's also an accurate indictment of our own nation today. It's an accurate indictment of so many of our own political and religious leaders. They're like this oven controlled by their passions. They do not really care what God thinks of anything. Sin is so rampant because people, even leaders, are inflamed with and controlled by the sinful thinking of the world. 
So the oven imagery, this intense fire, it's very powerful. It depicts hearts that are continually just storing up sin, burning, inflamed with it, controlled by various sins. And that's the result of imbibing worldly thinking. Second image, the image of half-baked dough. The image of half-baked dough. What is this image describing? Basically, it's describing what sin results in, uselessness. The first image, controlling passion, like an intense fire. This one, uselessness. Here's how it's laid out. Verse 8 continues. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Now, don't envision one of our American dessert cakes here, you know. This refers to a flat disc of dough looking much like what we would call pita bread, okay? Get pita bread in your mind. Some of you are thinking, well, now I I can't listen. I'm thinking of pita bread. I'm hungry. Well, when cooking that disc of dough, it was very important to turn the cake at the right moment. Otherwise, it could burn on one side. But even worse, it would leave the other side undone, raw, doughy. And the point is that this cake with this inedible raw dough on one side, nobody wants it. It's completely useless. That was Israel in her state of sin, useless to the Lord. The indifference in their hearts to the things of God manifested in spiritual weakness. They were spiritually uncooked, spiritually raw. To say it differently, their weak commitment to Yahweh was underdone. And therefore, they were unpalatable to the Lord. And verse 9 gives the real sadness of that condition. Verse 9, strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Now, strangers, that means the outside nations, they were going to those nations to make alliances for help, but they were being devoured by them primarily because these nations were requiring high payments for their assistance. So they're kind of sucking the nation dry. And therefore, the nation's economic strength was being eaten up. But the nation didn't realize how serious this condition really was. They were like a person, it says here, whose hair had gradually turned gray. I can relate to this. It's just sprinkled in at first, one here and there. but he didn't notice it was happening. So the point is that the nation was like that in its waning days. It's, it's, it's national old age, as we would call it, because we know now, looking back, this is the last prophet. God is going to judge them. So in their old age, they're spiritually weak. They're useless, like half-baked dough. And they did not seem concerned about it or aware of it because of sin's blinding power. And like every sin... Pride was connected, verse 10. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all of this. Due to their pride, actually repenting and turning to the Lord was the farthest thing from their thoughts. It was only after judgment, 
had come and reached a, a, a terrifying level of destruction where the entire nation was overrun by Assyria and the people were exiled, taken off for many centuries. Only then did some, a minority, turn to him. God saw it all. He looked at Israel and he saw this hot oven just burning out of control. He saw dough that was half-baked. Here's the third image. The image of an aimless bird. The The image of an aimless bird. This image is describing sin resulting in something. It results in a lack of discernment. A lack of discernment. Verse 11. You guys have never heard me preach so fast through a passage of Scripture before. Verse 11. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Now we look at that imagery of the dove and we think, well, that's, that's sweet imagery, isn't it? I mean, a dove normally conjures up thoughts of beauty and it's a symbol of peace. Not here. The idea in the, in the language here, I don't know how your translation has it, but civil dove, a silly dove without sense, it's referring to something wrong uh, in the heart. There's no, no inner discernment. No inner discernment is the point. So in these verses, the dove suggests a creature that's easily deceived, senseless, aimless in its flying. That was Israel. Once they forsook God, they were like that. The nation would, they flitted over to Egypt, mentions Egypt there, the great power to the south, way south. They were looking for help there. And then they would flit over to Assyria to the east to possibly find help there. In other words, God's people were looking to every human agency but ignoring and disregarding God himself. So the imagery is that of going to and fro in life, listening to various sources of help and counsel, imbibing various worldviews. It's the idea of gullibility, ambivalence, when it comes to actually being committed to something. And sin does that to people. As we habitually give in to sinful passions, we become more and more gullible more and more open to other sins, more and more ambivalent towards spiritual desires, more and more aimless and undiscerning in life like this silly dove. Sin feeds on itself. Which, by the way, that's why we must keep short accounts to our sin. So in verse 12, continuing the bird imagery here, the Lord threatens his personal intervention here, his direct intervention, verse 12, when they go, I will spread my net over them. I'll bring them down like the birds of the sky. In other words, he's saying, well, if Ephraim's going to be like this silly bird, then I'm going to be the crafty hunter. I'll put my net over them. Verse 12, I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Ephraim was proclaiming to their people, that everything was fine and they were proclaiming their desire to turn to outside nations in order to make treaties with them. So the Lord declared that he would chastise them and even cause the treaty and the alliances to backfire on them. In fact, the very nation they proclaimed most confidently that would help them, Assyria, 
God did use to chastise them. He used Assyria as a net to bring this silly bird down. Verse 13, more of God's divine complaint here continues. Woe to them, for they strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. These foreign alliances and and imbibing other worldviews and seeking the help of the world, that was a personal affront to God. In fact, the phrase strayed from me indicates a deliberate and desperate attempt to avoid the Lord. So destruction was going to come, doubtless by Assyria. God says the people had rebelled. That's a word that means revolted or mutinied. He had made a covenant with them and they had mutinied, opposed the stipulations of the covenant. Notice he also says they speak lies. What were the lies? That's a reference to their idolatry, worshiping other idols, worshiping idols because idolatry is the ultimate lie about God. It's saying a person who's an idolater is saying that God is not the one and only true God, and that's a lie. And from that lie stems others. From that lie stems false penitence. And from that lie stems belief that safety and prosperity just depends on our own efforts alone. From that lie stems doubt that God will help. Verse 14 says, and so they do not cry to me from their heart, even when they wail on their beds. They were moaning, groaning about their plight, but not truly turning in their hearts to the Lord. They were just moaning about their circumstances. I need to tell you, it's interesting here that Hosea says their wailing was on beds. That's not likely, it's not a reference to the beds they were sleeping on. But instead, it's a reference to pagan worship, idolatry, because sexual sin was many times included in the pagan worship. The beds or couches would be the settings for their fertility orgies at pagan shrines. So that made this wailing and even more offensive to the Lord, for while they were complaining about their circumstances, they're refusing to give up their sin, their pagan worship. And yet, verse 15, verse 14 says, they would still feign seeking the Lord. Verse 14 says, but for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. You see, on one hand, they would go through the motions of worshiping God. That's what that's referring to, prescribed worship from the Lord. And they would go to the worship in hopes that God somehow would still bless them with grain and new wine. Let's put it in today's terms. They would come to church, so to speak, expecting God to help them. But on the other hand, the point again is that instead of truly repenting, they persisted in their hearts in turning away from Him. So their moaning was not true repentance and faith. They they wailed in prayer because of their misery, not because of of the heinousness of their sins before God. So we find God using parental language in verse 15. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. I was a good parent to them that compounded his grief. He'd worked diligently as a faithful parent, to train Israel by his discipline, his loving discipline, to have spiritual strength and moral strength, and they just used their strength to plot more evil. 
What a total lack of discernment on their part as to what made any sense at all. They truly were aimless in how they went about making decisions in life. And that's what habitual sin results in. A person being increasingly without stable thinking and a stable direction in life. Like an aimless bird. Last image, number four. The image of a faulty weapon. The image of a faulty weapon. And this image is describing sin as a state of being warped, broken. Verse 16. They turn, but not upward. They are like, so here's your other image, see. They are like a deceitful bow. So the only solution to the nation's apostasy was to turn, but Ephraim was turning the wrong direction. The people were turning, but they were turning everywhere but to the Lord who could actually help them. And so he says it's like shooting with a warped bow. No matter how well it's aimed, if the bow is faulty, then the arrows are not going to hit the target. Isn't it interesting the New Testament describes sin that way in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and, and fallen short, like the arrow falls short of the target. And what's the target? Fallen short of the glory of God. It's describing the same idea of missing a target. In that case in Romans, the target of living a life that manifests personally knowing and loving the Lord and being glorifying to God. Misses it. That described Israel. The nation had a faulty worldview and therefore it had no direction as if it's been shot from a warped bow. No direction toward worthwhile goals. And that necessitated God's judgment starting with the leaders. Verse 16. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Their tongues were proclaiming trust in their pagan neighbors. And that was the same thing as proclaiming defiance against God. Their princes, their leaders... He says they're going to suffer one way or another, and some of their leaders, many of them, met their doom by assassination due to the treachery of the priests and the coups. But even if not true of all of them, they would still come to meet their end by the swords of the Assyrians and Egyptians as well. And the doom that was coming would include the element of humiliation, derision. Israel would come to be derided, ridiculed, because of the downfall of her leaders. That's what the nation pictured. They were one consistent picture of being broken, shot out by a faulty, warped bow, living by a faulty, warped worldview. That is is what is at the heart of and the result of unrepentant. Sin. Sin's like an intense fire. It's like a half-baked dough. It's like an aimless bird. Faulty weapon. What is profitable for us about focusing on sin like this so much this morning? Glad you asked. The answer is, the more we understand what sin and its results are, the more we understand how God sees it, 
the more grateful we will be for the gospel and for what Christ has done for us on the cross to purchase our forgiveness. We're observing the Lord's table this morning. So let's, let's review this for a moment. If you really want to understand the heart of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and what was being accomplished as he paid the debt of our sin, and why this is so encouraging us to us to review this in comparison to what sin is like from God's perspective, it's really helpful to, to remember what that unusual biblical term in the New Testament that we find means, that term propitiation. That's what I want to talk about for a moment. The term propitiation appears four times in the New Testament. But in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's found many times, but there it's translated by our English word atonement. In the Hebrew that's being translated, it's a word that means to cover. So New Testament propitiation, Greek translation of the Old Testament atonement, but that's translating a word that means to cover. So here are some summary facts about that and why it's good to think about this and why it's good to refresh our memories of how God sees sin. It's because of sin that a covering is needed. And it's before the Lord that the covering is needed. Just remember what Verses like Leviticus 10 says about atonement. Verse, Leviticus 10, verse 17, the sin offering, it says, was for the purpose of making atonement for them before the Lord. This is something Godward we're talking about. God's view of sin and our need for covering atonement before Him. Leviticus 16.30, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. You'll be clean from all your sins to be happy? No, before the Lord. Sin creates a situation in our relationship to the Lord. It is sin that evokes holy displeasure or wrath, the vengeance of God, because God is a holy God who sees all sin and hates all sin. So a covering is needed that provides the removal, the cessation of that divine pleasure that the sin is evoking. And the death of Christ accomplished the possibility of the covering. God's holy wrath was satisfied in the death of Christ. And the result for the individual center who trusts in Him is cleansing and forgiveness. So put all that together and you have what propitiation then means. It refers to appeasing God, to pacifying God, to satisfying Him, His wrath. By Christ's death, God's holy hatred of sin was satisfied and therefore His displeasure over what He sees is removed. Now some have misinterpreted something about all that, so a very important clarification is needed. Some see this as depicting this conflict that was going on between the Son and the Father. The persons of the Godhead. 
On one hand, you've got the gracious, caring son who loves the sinner so much he's willing to give his life on the cross to pay the debt of their sin. And by doing that, this gracious, loving son seeking to win over this angry God, this angry father, to finally get him to be loving. And that is not the situation at all. In a, in a, in a way that is mysterious to us, that is profound to us, it was the love of this holy God that was the very reason for the cross. Propitiation is not satisfying the wrath of God in the sense that it's turning the wrath of God now into love. It was always love. It was the very love of God that brought about the work of Christ on the cross. Listen to how John Murray puts it. The propitiation of the divine wrath affected in the work of Christ is the provision of God's eternal and unchangeable love. That's why John wrote this in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it is entirely wrong to say or to think that the angry, wrathful God is somehow, was somehow made loving now by the sacrifice of Christ. And yet it is right to say the wrath of that God was satisfied through the cross. And one more term, the wonderful result of God's wrath being satisfied so that there's a covering over all the sin that God sees is the wonderful word reconciliation. God is at enmity with sinners. But once their sin is covered, He is reconciled to them. All because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's even wrong and not complete to just think of us being reconciled to Him. Listen, what is profound is that in the cross, God is reconciled to us. He's at enmity with us. What a joy to think that those who trust in Christ, their sin has a covering. But I got to tell you, to live in the joy of all this that I'm speaking about, as I threw out earlier, we must keep short accounts of our sin. If you're going to live in the joy of it, we must keep short accounts through confession and repentance. Sin's dangerous. And for two weeks, I've just made the case from Hosea that God, God's omniscient. He sees it all, in all its form, even secret sins. And in all its forms, it grieves God. If we could ever get that in our hearts, that our sin against our spouse is ultimately a sin against God. Our sin against another person is ultimately against God. Our private sins are ultimately sins against God. It's dangerous. And choices of sin habitually lead to bondage to sin. And the only remedy for sin and the real definition of healing then is the one we find in Hosea. It's forgiveness that comes because of the covering. And the Bible tells us forgiveness is always available to us. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So to know the joy of all that, we must keep after that daily short accounts of sin, confessing, repenting. Plus, the more we are on guard against sin, the more we'll live our lives then in a way that pleases and glorifies God. I want to end by returning to Hosea. I want you to turn over the very last verse of Hosea. It's a good verse to end with, Hosea 14, verse 9. I couldn't put it any better. Hosea 14.9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. Appropriate words for us today as well. Let's pray. Father, it's our joy now to observe the Lord's table and the pattern the Lord left for us on the night before his death as he took the Passover meal and gave it new significance, the, all now pointing to something about him and his sacrifice on the cross to pay for sin. What a joy it is to, from time to time, refresh our hearts Encourage our hearts by remembering the cross and Christ. But Lord, help us to never forget why we do this. It's because of our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not just some sort of weakness or bad decision. or We certainly have all those. But the real issue is about everything is sin. Sin that you, the omniscient God, sees in all its forms, but what a thought, you are God of love, you are love, and in love, you sent the Son to pay the debt for all the sin of all your people, all the sin that you see of all your people, to pay the debt so that your holy wrath is satisfied. What an act of love. On your part, what an act of love on the Son's part. Lord, thank you that if we've come to understand that and to put our trust in that, Christ, in His life and work on our behalf, instead of trusting in ourselves in some way, if we've come to trust in Him, that we now are covered, a covering that will never be taken away. May our hearts rejoice as we think about those things at the Lord's table today. I do pray, Lord, for anyone here who's never come to the place of receiving covering, that they'll humbly admit their sinfulness, that that's their problem, and that they need a Savior, they need cleansing, they need forgiveness. May they cry out to you, be merciful.